Hello, listeners. Back to school season's coming up, which we know can be difficult for those going through a divorce. And this is especially true when alcohol and child safety is a concern. You know that on Divorce and Beyond, my mission includes bringing you the latest insider knowledge and information from top experts with regard to your divorce, especially during these changing times. That's why I've partnered with Soberlink to help create and offer resources to help you navigate the upcoming back-to-school season. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology which was created to help prove sobriety in custody cases. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to receive real-time updates from monitored co-parents anytime, anywhere allowing for swift intervention for improved child safety. They've helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time for peace of mind in child custody cases. Soberlink is currently offering free back-to-school and divorce packets that include an expert Q&A with me, back-to-school checklist, communication tips, and more. You can request your free packet today at www.soberlink.com backslash Susan. Hello, and welcome to the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I'm Susan Guthrie, your host. As a top divorce attorney and family law mediator for 30 years, I know what you need to know to get through your divorce, and most importantly, how to move beyond it to thrive and transition to your new future. My experts and I are here to give you the insider view into the process, so listen in for the wisdom and expert information you need on your journey through divorce and beyond. Hello, listeners. I have an exciting double episode coming up for you today and Thursday. A few weeks ago, I ran a post on Instagram that shared a recent BuzzFeed article, and it contained a bunch of divorce attorneys' craziest cases. And that post was so popular that I thought, what a great idea it would be to do it as an episode. So I reached out to some of your favorite guests on the show, people like Bill Eddy, Kate Anthony, Dr. Elizabeth Cohen, and many more, and I asked our experts and friends to share their most memorable cases or clients with us and to also share an important lesson or takeaway for you, the listeners. I have to tell you, it is fascinating to hear what has stayed with my friends and colleagues, and there are some amazing insights for you all, as well as some juicy stories. Just remember, the names have been changed to protect the not-so-innocent. So many of our experts wanted to participate, I actually had to make this a special two-parter to fit it all in. So listen on and hear your favorite Divorce and Beyond experts share their most memorable cases. You'll hear part one today and then tune in again on Thursday for part two, which by the way, will include my most memorable case to close it all out because you didn't think I'd pass on sharing, did you?
Well, now we are moving on to one of my most popular guests. In fact, the gentleman with the number one episode, I was just telling him by almost double the number of downloads. Of course, I am talking about high conflict expert, attorney and mediator and therapist, Bill Eddy. Bill, thank you so much for joining me for this. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be part of this new project. Yeah, this is an exciting idea. I was just explaining it to you. For my listeners who have not yet met Bill, although Bill has three wonderful episodes, including the one that I was just referencing as number one, um, but Bill has three wonderful episodes on divorce and beyond. I'll highlight all of those in the show notes for you. And Bill is a prolific, beyond being an attorney, a mediator, a therapist, an expert, he is also a prolific author. Bill, how many books do you have now? Um, it's it's about 20, actually, yeah. because I did five during COVID. <laughs> yeah, you needed something to do to keep you busy, I guess. And I have to tell you, I have all almost, I think, every single one of your books. Usually I'd be holding them up right now, but I didn't want to take time away from your most memorable case. And you were just giving me a little background on it. I have to tell you, everyone, I can't wait to hear this one. So, Bill, I'm just going to turn it over to you. What was your most memorable case? Well, Susan, this case was a 10-year case in family court. So this is one as a family lawyer, having a background as a family therapist and mediator. But this was pure litigation, this case. So, And this is years ago, I'm glad to say. But I'll give you a little bit of background. So I represented the husband. And the wife in this case brought endless false allegations against him, just almost every kind. And they had two children who were at the beginning of the case around uh, 10 and 11 or 9 and 10, right around there. And so the case started, it was supposed to be a mediation, and I was reviewing a mediation agreement uh, that had been prepared by a mediator. And the husband came to me and the wife went to the most adversarial, um, high conflict lawyer in my county. And what happened is that guy served papers. He said, I said, if you have any papers that need to be served, just serve them on me, you know, because you can do that as lawyers. You say, serve the lawyer and we'll accept it. I told him that the next day, two marshals served my client who's a bank vice president, at his office in front of like 20 people with a restraining order um, and a kickout order so that he would have to leave his residence. Well, anyway, so that was totally humiliating, but the lawyer enjoyed doing that. And I told the lawyer, I said, I told you you could do that. It's totally unnecessary. And he just chuckled. So anyway, it was false allegations to get this because the wife said a week, listed a declaration, a week of domestic violence incidents, which were disturbing, except that he was in another state during that week. And he had his airline tickets and brought those to court. And the wife's lawyer, a different lawyer at that point, had tried to say, um, you know, we'd like that, that declaration back. Um, The judge said, you know, I'm not going to give it back, but I'll seal it. So anyway, 
So that's just a kickoff of the case. So false domestic violence claim. Turns out six months into the case, my client tells me his ex-wife stabbed him in the back once with a mechanical pencil. He went to court. Yeah, he went to court at ex party on his own. The judge said, you know, let me see your back. He was actually a pretty handsome guy, so I don't know how much the uh, <laughs> the judge enjoyed seeing his his strong back. We don't usually uh, disrobe in court, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he got his restraining order, but he never served it, and he continued to live. So this was like years before I got into this case, years before they separated. So anyway, let me move on here. So then... There's an appraisal of property at their home, and she had moved a bunch of stuff out, but he'd taken photos. So here's lessons for your listeners is take pictures of your property because sometimes someone makes them disappear before things can get valued. So he had photos and he showed the, the property assessor. It was a furniture property assessor, the photos, and, and, the, and the guy says, well, I can't do based on photos. And the wife's trying to grab the photos because she realizes she, he's got evidence. Anyway, that night, there was a concert, an outdoor concert, that they were going to attend together. But they had split up. and He had the tickets. So he went. So I'm just going to go alone. Well, she's there with her boyfriend. So her boyfriend after the concert, because she's really angry about this, mm-hmm. her boyfriend after the concert runs up and assaults my guy. But a guard there immediately separates them. Well, here's what happened. The next day, they went, the the wife and the boyfriend went to the sheriff's department near because they lived a little away and got a restraining order or got a restraining order based on the boyfriend having all these bruises all over his chest. Well, guess what? The wife was a makeup artist. And that was her job at a retirement community with makeup. So she did that. And she also worked well with Photoshop. So she took these photos and then the photos were brought to court. So he gets a restraining order against my guy who's never been abusive. He's been stabbed by the wife. Now he's accused of all this. Anyway, I take their deposition. I take his deposition. And and tell me when I'm getting too deep because there's no no kinds, yeah well I bet if this went on stuff. for ten years I can only imagine <laughs> if this is the first few months well let me <laughs> let me cut to the chase so they had a trial he was accused of felony assault of the boyfriend and and was found guilty oh. now we myself and we got a criminal I didn't do the the criminal trial. And But we had an appeals attorney who was very good for criminal defense, and I helped him, and, and he got it uh, reversed on appeal. And but the district attorney could bring the charges again. The appellate lawyer and I met with the district attorney and said, you're on the wrong side on this case. By then, I had gotten sanctions against the wife for lying in family court about child support and people should never lie about that because people have records. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's the worst possible thing to lie about. Exactly. So I caught her lying. She was sanctioned. I told the DA and, and the appellate lawyer that the issue was that the district attorney had evidence that 
was exculpatory, that the boyfriend had lied to police once in another case. And if the jury had that information, because it was he said, she said, it might have thrown out. But anyway, let me move on. So I got the child support sanctions. I got the felony assault, got overthrown. I got uh, parenting. She brought a court hearing, and it wasn't clear. She says, I want him to be more responsible. And we go, what, what are you asking for? This may, may maybe negotiate this. We get to court. And she says, I want him to have 50-50. She had the majority of the time. I have never been in a court hearing, and I was in court for 15 years, never where someone wanted to force my client to have more time. More time. Yeah. Yeah. Not only was I've never I heard of it. Yes, the judge was shocked. <laughs> and so anyway, my client accepted that. But here's the thing that made it 10 years. So my client sadly became depressed and he couldn't work. And so he got disability. And when you get disability and you have kids and you're a supporting person, you can get some disability to help support the kids. So he had 50-50 time and it helped him and it helped him support the kids. Well, after the kids are like 19 and 20, she realizes he got money because of disability. And I was the primary parent. Well, she wasn't when that happened. Right. And so she goes to court. The kids are already 18. I always said these cases go until the kids are 18. That's not true. Not in this case. <laughs> so anyway, so she goes to court and we're able to knock that down. So over 10 years, there was over a dozen serious false allegations against him. And none of them ever stuck in the end of the game. But in the process, a lot of this stuff really disrupted his life. So what did I get out of this? Yeah, there's a lot here. (laughs) (laughs) So what I learned from this case is a lot of what I put in the book Splitting. Now, this case is not in that book. But the principles, first of all, is taking an assertive approach. Because if you look aggressive, then you look like you're the high conflict person. And my client's constantly getting accused of being a high conflict person. And he was not. And so it was a case of projection. And if you want to know about projection, this is the perfect case. She projected domestic violence on him. She projected one more quick thing here. Called up. Her lawyer called up week before the Christmas holidays. Is your client going to be responsible during his time? You know, they each have a week. Is he going to fulfill his obligations to care for the kid, kids? And I checked with him. Any reason? No. I don't know why she'd ask that. Well, we figured it out. He had the first week. He brings the kids to her house to change. She ain't home. I was going to say she's not there. Pick them up from me when you get home. She didn't come home for a week. She spent the two-week holidays with a new boyfriend, like, you know, in another state at some resort. She just wanted to make sure that he was going to have the kids. So anyway, so the assertive approach is staying calm and presenting facts. We were so good. They picked on the wrong person. I'm a little obsessive compulsive, and my facts were lined up all the time. And when she got away with something, we eventually would catch something later on. And so it's staying, staying steady, 
not getting rattled, and being information focused, which is really what saved his uh, his butt in this case. Um, so the assertive approach, keeping good records, and and not overreacting. That's so important in this case. He fortunately was a pretty restrained guy, um, but boy, there were some angry moments. Um, in one case, he just blurted out, because the other lawyer lied, and the other lawyer would lie about things, and he, he just blurted out the word liar, and the other lawyer says, Your Honor, please admonish him, and the judge admonished my client for interrupting and, and right. saying that. And that was the only time that uh, something like that happened. Otherwise, he saw we're going to win. But it really it made him depressed. It really was so sad. Um, and I would say, you know, I talk about high conflict personalities and personality disorders. I think she had all four of the cluster B personality disorders. And that helped me strategize for the case and helped me stay calm because I knew if I overreact, then all is lost. So that's, that's what I learned from my most memorable case. Well, I don't, I, I don't know how you could forget that case, but you know, it does really drive that home. I know you and I have talked about on some of the podcast episodes that so often in the face of that, just flurry of you know, accusations and those behaviors and that antagonism, the person who's not the personality disordered person does start to seem somewhat crazed because yeah. it, it's crazy making. Um, so I actually, I wish I'd been in court to see that because uh, having known you now for a while and, and your ability to stay calm and have your facts straight um, that must have been quite a, uh, a master class in dealing with high conflict in a courtroom. And another point that you make here, and I think it's important for people to notice this, it's not always just the client or one of the parties who might be high conflict. It's sometimes the attorneys or other people who are involved and sometimes multiples, right? You might have a high conflict client with a high conflict attorney, and that is a whole nother kind of hell. Uh, to deal with. Yes. And I might mention that my next most awful case was with that same attorney. And I was able to catch him at lying, whereas the first one was really hard, hard time to do that. But the second time is to catch him in line. He got out of the case after about a month. So, uh, you know, well, <laughs> that gives us all a bad name. I want to say to everyone out there, Attorneys at our very core are have an ethical code that does not allow us to even come close to the line of not telling the truth or or giving misinformation or omitting you know information or truth. So um, unfortunately, as in any profession, there are some bad seeds out there. Well, Bill, as always, that is a doozy. I, I may have to start the whole series out with that one because <laughs> there's there's a lot to unpack in that. But as you said when we were talking earlier, that case sort of led you into writing all of your books that have ha helped millions of people, including I'll put this um, this note from a listener into the show notes. But I just received another message from somebody that you know, their podcast episode about splitting, I think she said, 
saved my life. Please let Bill know how much his work has done for me. And that's not the only one I receive. I hope it's not the only one you receive, Bill. You have helped so many people. Well, thank you. And I think you're doing this series is going to help so many people. So I really appreciate the opportunity to to share. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for participating. It's been this has been an eye-opening experience. I know my listeners are getting a lot out of it. Thank you. So now we're going to hear from our friend, Eric Broder, my colleague back in Connecticut, where I, as you all know, I used to practice for such a long time. You remember Eric. Eric is one of the leading family law attorneys. His firm is one of the top, is the top family law attorney or family law um, matrimonial practice in Connecticut. It's called Broder, Orland, Murray, and DeMatty. I happen to know all of those people and they're fantastic Mm -hmm. lawyers. Um, And you also probably remember Eric because he came to visit back in January to answer your top five FAQs about divorce. Really popular episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, it's really the great place to start if divorce is in your future. And face it, how often do you get to get your top five answer or questions answered uh, from one of the top attorneys in the country? So now Eric is joining us because he has a, a you know, it's a pretty interesting case that stands out as his most memorable case. So first, thanks for joining us, Eric, and thanks for sharing your memorable case. Thank you for having me. It's always uh, it's a lot of fun and it's fun to listen to the other ones, too. So. Yeah, well, and I've been happy to hear Eric has actually had some uh, clients mention his appearance on Divorce and Beyond. So we're always happy to know that uh, people are out there listening. As I said, your episode was a really popular one, those top five FAQs. You know, as someone who is day to day and has for decades now been dealing with family law and helping guide people through the process, uh, you have your pulse on kind of what's happening, but you, you also mentioned your memorable case to me. And I thought, Oh, this is a good one because (laughs) it might be a little, it might sound familiar to some people, but it might be a little surprising to some others. So why don't you tell us what your most memorable case was? So, yes. So this was a while back um, when I was probably in the early third of my career. And I had a female client whose spouse was a physician and he was having an affair, but he was having an affair on his mistress as well. And my client found out because the person who was having the affair with the mistress, I rather the person who's having the affair with which I'm, mistress, sorry, mistress, mistress one or mistress two. two. Okay. Mistress two. I always get confused. Mistress two called my client to tell her that he was having an affair with mistress one and herself as well. And that's how my client found out that for three years, this physician, who, when, when he was on call, I think he meant something different than being on call, um, was having the affair. And while that's sometimes, I've heard that before a little bit in my practice, the, what, what really struck me was the audacity of this doctor to think the marriage can still work out and file in Connecticut for a reconciliation, which you can actually file for the court to say, hey, we want to reconcile. And I want to have some, you know, couples therapy and some time for the case to go on hold. And that was probably the first time I saw that tool being utilized in that capacity. But his approach throughout the case was, I don't know what's wrong. We, you have a great life. You have all the money. You can go do things with your friends. I mean, he was very chauvinistic, obviously, to say the least. But he didn't see what he did wrong 
almost. And it was probably the first time I'd represented and been involved in cases with narcissists, but this sort of took, this sort of went to a whole new level. And then I watched the anger come in where he made her feel like she was wrong. And he was threatening, of course, I'm not going to work as a doctor anymore in my multi-physician practice. And I'm going to, you know, go work and I'm just going to leave. I'm going to disappear. I'm going to go to, I'm going to work at Starbucks. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And you're going to get nothing. And she was really paralyzed with fear that this man who had multiple affairs for years was going to literally leave her with, with nothing. And what I learned from that, and this was early on, was trying to teach reality and the law to a client, how he couldn't do that, how to be protective of her at some point, also while almost ingratiating this, this gentleman who I thought was, I mean, I still think about it, really, um, to get him to come to the plate to give us a settlement that protected my client, because a guy that's having multiple affairs in his job might not be long for his job. And, you know, when you're sleeping with nurses and people in, in the hospital, which he was doing, um, that's, that's a recipe for disaster. So it was definitely a way to get quite, that taught me at a young age or a young point in my career, how to protect a client in that situation. And really um, just sort of knocked me off my feet the first time I heard the facts of the case and how she found out. But what really knocked me out was the fact that he thought nothing was wrong. We can live like this. We'll be fine. And that was probably one of the more memorable fact patterns, but the legal threats that stemmed from it certainly still sent out in my mind. But I would represent guys like him. It really taught me, I understand how these guys think. Now, that was certainly to another level, but that sort of approach that some of these guys take is interesting. I say guys, it's women divide, although I tend to find it be a little few more on the male side, in my experience. But- learning how they think and advising them is, is an entirely different challenge. And a lot of it stemmed from this, from this case years back. So um, I know it has a little Netflix series. I can get six or seven episodes out of this if we wanted to. Um, but, and, and the postscript is that woman was remarried two, last summer or two summers ago, right? Right. Somewhere during COVID and um, is doing so well and really unfortunately became sort of like a single mother to their then you know, middle school age kids who are doing well. So, you know, she always, she, she was secure financially. She's now working and doing well, but it was quite a shock to hear that the mistress, he was having an affair on his mistress. And that's how uh, my client found out about the case. Well, that's, I mean, you have to say that is the true example of once a cheater, always a cheater. When your <laughs> cheater is cheating on the person he's cheating on you with, with someone else. I'm, yes. I'm like, But that's also, I mean, I find that interesting because two things in there. One, I've seen that as well, where Mm -hmm. someone is like, well, I've been cheating for a couple of years. When you didn't know, everything was fine. Why does anything have to change now that you know? And I'm Mm -hmm. like, well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But in that particular case, you know, one thing that we've said on the podcast before, and I'd love to get your thought on this, is generally adultery doesn't have any bearing on the divorce mm-hmm. case, right? We tell yeah. that to clients, right? Happily married people don't go out and cheat, but multiple cheating and a pattern of cheating might have some impact. What, what do you tell clients or what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good point. I, generally cases are 50, 50 in a long-term marriage, multiple children. And if someone's having an affair, they don't just wake up and 
have an affair. There, there are reasons on one side, uh, a sexless marriage, sleeping in separate rooms. Not, I mean, there's numerous reasons. And judges, they'd hear it all the time. They don't care. But in a case like this, where the facts are so sort of outrageous, it could come into play in dividing assets unequally. I mean, it, we're in Connecticut in divorce cases. There's no jury, right? I can imagine a jury in town on this case. The woman would have gotten 95% of the assets. But you can definitely get an unequal distribution, even in the form of 60% of the assets, maybe a little bit longer alimony. There are definitely ways in this case. And it's not just the affairs. It's the amount of time that he spent having these affairs away from the children that she was raising. So he wasn't involved in more of the day-to-day things, because if you're not around and you're having a relationship outside the marriage, um, that's a little different than if you like to play golf or train for a triathlon or something. Um, but it, so it did in this case, it did have an effect on the eventual settlement. We did resolve the case. It didn't go to trial. But yes, in those sort of outrageous situations, there were ways to get substantially more than half the assets. Right. I mean, it's something that definitely comes into play. So I don't want everyone out there whose who's spouse is having an affair to immediately think, oh, I'm going to get more. But when there are, you know, those, I always call it the Tiger Woods case. When you've got a Tiger Woods out there, there might be yes. an opportunity for a less than 50 or a, a change from a 50-50. Yep. The other thing you talked about here, and I think that many listeners mm. will also resonate with this in, in their cases, because we hear this so often, is the, I'm just going to quit my job. I'm going to stop making so much money. You won't get, you won't mm-hmm. live your lifestyle anymore. And you, in the pre-interview, you had a great comment about that because he said he was going to go work at Starbucks. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's sort of the fear and the threat. But if you worked at Starbucks, he'd be treated like a million dollar a year barista because, you know, if you have the earning capacity, the ability to a million dollars a year as a doctor, you can go work at Starbucks. You're just going to spend pay alimony as though you have a million dollar a year income um, or whatever the appropriate income is. But that's always a big threat. And, that, and you know, I can imagine a, a fight or a discussion between my client or, or in this any case in a living room or at a kitchen table when someone says that. Well, you're going to have to move out of this town and this beautiful home. And I don't care. The kids will go to school somewhere else. They won't go to private. They won't do what they're doing. And that's going to be it. That's not an uncommon and probably very scary conversation. To me, I, I try to relax my clients. That's, that's not going to be the case. And that wasn't the case. And it's not the case, certainly. But it's got to be tough to hear that from somebody, especially when you don't know much about your family finances, for example, or what the situation is. Right. And, and it is a con- the two that we hear the most, I think, are I'm never going to pay you a cent or you're never going to see your kids again. And we know yes, that's, those are incredibly unlikely circumstances yes. to ever happen. That's right. That's right. And those are. Yeah. The, the kids want to. It's definitely. Yeah. yeah. You a lot too. Um, you, you'll see your kids, folks. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to I'm going to get sole custody. Well, you you work, you know, 80 hours a week or you travel, you know, two, three days a week out of the house. You're not going to get sole. It, it, it's yeah, but it's a threat. It happens all the time. I'll have a nanny raise them. Okay. I mean, yeah. So. Yeah. There, and those are, you know, but people will say in the heat of the moment or to push your buttons or to cause you fear, try and control you. They will say these things. So yeah. some really great lessons for people and for you, it sounds like yes, out of yes. your most memorable <laughs> case. Uh, yes. I do want to let, let listeners know Eric is going to be coming back in just a couple of months. So stay tuned for a new episode with Eric. We're going to be talking about sort of the basics of child support, but then also how some of the landscape of child support has changed 
through the pandemic because our lives have changed. And it's really, Eric's got some really interesting insights on how that has impacted child support and parenting plans. So probably coming in August or maybe early September. So stay tuned and you'll hear more from Eric Broder. So thanks, Eric. Thank you, Susan. Really a pleasure. Thank you. So now we have the divorce doctor with us. I'm so happy because you really can't do a divorce and beyond podcast episode compilation without having Dr. Elizabeth Cohen on. I think you are the guest who has been on the show the most times. You are certainly the guest that excites the most um, listener outreach from my listeners, you really resonate with them. And so I know that they're going to be, and I am as well, fascinated to hear what for you, Dr. Elizabeth, is a memorable case or client or situation that you've dealt with in your practice. But first, thank you so much for coming and joining us for this. Mm, Thanks for having me, Susan. It's an honor. I love being on your podcast and I love your audience. They're so engaged and smart and wise. And so this is such a wonderful opportunity. Um, thank you for giving me the chance to also just reflect on all the people that, um, have been in my life and I'm, that have allowed me to be on their journey with them. And so I, re- I was remembering a client of mine who, um, came into my office and this was back in the day when I had an office, physical office and came in and just kind of dropped her bag, dropped her coat, just and her entire body just kind of oofed onto the, onto the, couch, that kind of physical manifestation of the heaviness of going through a divorce. Um, And I think she might've even sighed when she sat down. And one of the things that happens often in my, in my office is that people start to cry and then apologize, which I just want to, as a shout out to your listeners, like never apologize for crying. Like, even if you're not going through a divorce, crying is a beautiful way of expressing emotions. As we've talked about many times on the podcast, like very important. So I think she, you know, grabbed the tissues and I, you know, leaned in to hear what was going on for her. And she started saying, I don't think you'll ever hear a story like I'm about to tell you. And then spent the 50 minutes of our session telling me every single detail about the person she was divorcing, who, by the way, this was not a couples therapy was not in the room. No. In fact, oh yes, they were. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> they were metaphorically in the room. They were yes. taking up all the space, all the space. So figuratively, he was there. And the intensity and the detail with which she told me um, about him and his struggles and what he did wrong and the conversations that he's had. You know, I I tried at Gently, it was my first session. I tried to kind of cut in and say, um, how did that make you feel? Or that must have been hard for you. And there was just this um, intense perseveration, I would use that word, on telling me the story of what he did wrong. And that somehow in that moment, I realized he became her story. Like She had no story. She was not in there at all. And it felt as a therapist, I felt really powerless because there was no way to kind of get into her feelings. And I could feel really, really strongly, it wasn't hard, um, that she wanted me to ally with her and her rage. 
Yeah. She wanted me to say, well, that's disgusting. In fact, sometimes she wouldn't pause for any reflection of emotion, but she would pause for me to, you know, have a face, you know, like open mouth or open eyes. I could feel that. Just a nod, just a, yeah, something affirmation, right? Exactly. And as a clinician, it, it's challenging because I knew that this was not going to move us forward in any sort of way. And I know my oath is to meet people where they are. And so I really just kept, when I get into those um, spaces, and this happens with people not as therapists, just in life, I, a tr- trick I do is I, I sit back because very often when that's happening, I notice I'm kind of leaning forward, trying to understand or manage. And I try to actually feel my spine. It's a very funny little exercise because we don't really pay attention to our spine. But when you do, I don't know when if your audience tries it, there's this like leaning back and kind of internal uh, focus where it's like, okay, I'm grounded. I'm here. And whatever's happening in front of me, that kind of whirling dervish is not getting too close. It's a way of kind of creating a bit of a boundary for me so that I can really show up as my best self. So you can use that, you know, if you're with your lawyers or. In I always way. love your little tips. <laughs> These are great. <laughs> yeah, I can't help but give them. So she kept, you know, going on and on and on and on about her, her experience. And then when we finished, she said, so what do you think? And I said, it sounds like you've been through quite a lot. Um, honestly, I know a lot about him, but not that much about you. If we were to work together, my thought would be that we would try to hear what's underneath that whole story and how it related to you. And that might not be something you want to do, but if you are willing and curious, I promise you that's where the healing is. We can do it together. But it won't really be helpful for anybody, including you know your children. So they had happened. She happened to have children. If we focus so much on him, and so I really explained the treatment plan. Right. And she started to cry, and she said, "No one has ever asked me how I feel in all of this." And it was a really slow. I just want to keep saying like slow, slow process of having her talk about what her experience was like to be in the relationship. And I want everyone to know that when we see people um, doing a repetitive or perseverative behavior, we have to have a lot of compassion for them because for whatever reason that worked right. for them. It's not working anymore, right? So she showed up in the office and for therapy, that doesn't work. But in her relationship with turned out to be someone who was pretty self-centered and narcissistic, it worked to always be about him. That kept her safe. Correct. Yeah. Right. That's all a narcissist wants. Right. And so she was just still using that playbook that worked in the relationship, trying to be now out of the relationship. So I have a lot of compassion for people who keep doing the thing they've always done because it worked for them at some point. But it's my job as a clinician to help, especially people who've gone through a divorce, to see how those behaviors might not be helping anymore and how we can slowly on a microscopic level um, shift that. And what we did was we would decide in the beginning that we were going to have, you know, 10 minutes to talk about him 
And then it got to eight minutes and then it got to seven minutes. And we basically did a gradual exposure. We call it in cognitive behavioral therapy to not talking about him, but we couldn't do it fully. She needed the space to do that. And then the time talking about her sometimes wasn't just verbal. It was just sitting quietly and breathing. You know, we had to build the new skill of what is she feeling? And I know when I went through my divorce, I had to do that too. So it's really, it's building a new neural pathway. Yeah, but so important. You're telling me this story and I've met her or, or a figurative her at cocktail parties at, you know, events that I've been to. And when I mention what I do, people are always telling me their divorce story. And I hear from those people who tell me the story and it's always, and then they did this and then they did that. And often it's, and that was 27 years ago. Right. I mean, I've had, I had that lady talking to me. And so, you know, one thing I would just want to say here to the listeners is you don't want to be that person 27 years later. She was living her divorce still 27 years into it. Her ex-husband had gone on. He had remarried. I heard all about that as well, but she was still living that divorce. And so look how important it was for your patient, your client to have found you and have found that space, tiny little incremental steps forward as they were. It was the time. I mean, she, she's getting her life back in, in every one of those tiny little steps, because if you don't, and this is that work we talk about all the time, right? Like if you stay stuck in your divorce you have the potential to stay there for years and years and years. Yeah. Because it is an inside job, not an outside job. Absolutely. So even though the papers are signed, if you haven't done that work, and I, I just, I also really do believe that we need to ultimately find some small bit of compassion for the other person in, in every situation, if we're going to live a full kind of vibrant life. And so you don't have to love the person. You don't have to want to get back together. You don't even have to like the person, but to have a little bit of compassion for them is a gift for yourself. This is about you creating a life where you have released your baggage. The woman you're talking about right at the cocktail party just makes me think of someone carrying loads and loads of baggage, just things that will never be resolved. I mean, it's over, it's finished, but she's still carrying it. I think about... I think it was, a, I think it's a Buddhist um, saying about, you know, holding resentment is drinking poison and thinking the other person is going to die. That's how I see it is that you're doing this not for the other, you're stopping talking about the other person and starting to focus on yourself, not for them, but for you so that you can heal. And one of the miraculous things that happened for me when I did that was that my ex then actually was able to be compassionate to me because I wasn't there in his face being resentful either really or energetically. And so it's, it's a gift for you, for your family and eventually for the other person. Right. But if, if you do it for, well, do it for your kids. I do believe that very strong, but do it for yourself because I actually wanted to almost cry for the, for the woman I was talking to at that party, because you're a hundred percent right. She was carrying a load of just such misery and unhappiness. 
And the thought of someone carrying that for 27 years and still being, I mean, when she told me the story, honestly, I thought she was going to say it was, you know, just finished. They had just finalized the, except for the fact that she told me he'd married the whore. That was her also, right? She was still so caught in that trap. Um, But that's, I mean, it's, it's such an important part at some point that you that you be able to move forward and start healing. And very often, especially in a situation where the hurt has been so deep um, and the the trauma has been such, um, you need help. You need to find someone to help yep. you. And I love, I'm glad you brought up that, that phrase that she used because one of the things I helped this woman do, I remember, um, was actually just start with the words she used. Um, you know, when he cheated on me, it was always like when he cheated on me, or she would tell her kids when your dad left, you know, and really try and think about different words to use. Like when our, and it can just be like when our marriage ended, it doesn't have to be, you know, when the best thing happened to me ever, but it can just be more neutral. I say this all the time, like self-talk is self-hypnosis. So if you are constantly saying when he left me, when he left me, when he left me, guess what you end up feeling like someone who deserves to be left. Whereas if you say when our marriage ended, that's just neutral. It has no personal piece, you know, um, weight to it. It's like the idea that we make mistakes, but we're not a mistake. Yes. Oh, so that's a good one. There's the Instagram. uh, (laughs) Always. I always get the good ones from you. Well, this is, there's so much power in such a simple story that that you told. I can see why this is memorable to you. And I would imagine that this, one particular client resembles many others that you've worked with over the years. And so, you know, the, the good news for everyone out there is right. She was able to make progress. Oh yeah. She was able to date. She was able to move. She has a full, beautiful, wonderful life because she slowly was willing with, I'm so grateful to have, have been on the journey with me to chip away at what was that she needed to see herself. It reminds me of this. um, There's another story about a golden Buddha that it was, they were afraid it was going to get stolen in an invasion. So they dipped it in cement. And then years later, someone tapped on it and saw that it actually wasn't just cement. There was gold inside. And that's what I feel like I did with her. I helped get rid of that cement so she could see her inner golden part. And I bet she's a happy, healthy, thriving person today. So you can find, let me just throw this out there. You can find the light on the other side of divorce. Elizabeth's book, everybody, if you can't see it right behind her. Um, But that's what you do in helping people all the time. That's what I'm trying to do to help them find their beyond. That's why we are so aligned. And I, and I knew your, your memorable story would be very, would be something about moving people toward that light. So thank you so much for joining me for this, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me, Susan. All right. Well, now we're going to welcome our friend, Beth McCormick. You all remember Beth from actually two separate episodes. It's actually three, but one was lessons from a billion dollar divorce attorney, which uh, Beth is. Um, But on the flip side of that, Beth is also one of the most caring and concerned attorneys that I know for children in divorce and and making sure that um, children are protected and well cared for. And so she she also did a very special two-part episode for us. OMG, uh, wait, OMG, G-A-L, A-M-C, 
the the inside truth about guardian ed items and attorneys for the minor children because she acts in those roles as well. So Beth, it's it's going to be interesting to hear what your most memorable case is. Um, I can only imagine how many cases you've had over these these years. But um, thanks first of all for joining us for this effort. I think it's really been. Um, a great experience for listeners to be able to hear from their favorites again and to to hear something that impacted you and and a lesson from it. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And I love the concept of um, hearing kind of the best of from the best of. I'm excited. And I think people will be interested to hear that my uh, most memorable case is probably not very likely. Um, So that makes it kind of fun. Yeah, no, well, we can't wait. And I, you know, couldn't do this without you. I had to get all of the favorites back. So I'll just turn it over to you. Share your most memorable case with us. Well, interestingly, Susan um, came up with the idea of the Billionaire Divorce Attorney podcast, which um, we've gotten many laughs out of um, because, of course, people think, well, if you've touched cases involving that magnitude of money, that must be what's most memorable for you. And interestingly, um, it's not, it has very little to do with what kind of keeps me going every day and makes me um, want to do this work. So um, the most humbling work I do is when I represent the kiddos. And uh, it's a great honor when a judge appoints you to look out for a child's best interest. And, um, you know, having done that for 25 years, I'm still humbled every day. And often um, those appointments are done pro bono. So it's not something that we do for the money, but it is something that um, those of us who do it well take very seriously. So I was appointed by a judge to look out for a girl's best interest. She was an only child. Dad brought her in. Um, She sat in my office holding a case up to her chest as if it was her lifeline. And I thought I knew what it was, but I wasn't sure. And her first name's Lucy. Interestingly, my daughter is Lucy. So it was was a little challenging for me to kind of see this, what was clearly a very scared little girl. And I often meet kids outside of my office um, for this reason, because it can be scary. You know, what 11-year-old girl wants to walk into a law office, you know, sometimes the kids are so little, their little legs dangle. And anyway, um, Lucy came in with a clear agenda. Lucy wanted me to know that her mom was the devil and that she never wanted to see her again. And for those who represent children, that's a red flag um, for any child to be making such a pronouncement ever, much less at the beginning of a meeting. And she was holding her violin case so close to her because if she let it out of her sight, her mom would steal it and take it away from her. So that's how we met. That's how we started. And, you know, I was intrigued by trying to understand it. I also noticed she had an accent and it felt fake. And lo and behold, it was. Um, She uh, did study um, abroad. Her dad took her to Bath, England. And uh, she did do some studying there, but not enough to take on that accent after a few months. And anyway, to make a very, very, very long story, um, many years of litigation, as short as I can, um, 
I was able to unwind the story and realize that dad was doing um, what we know in the business as alienation, parental alienation, um, which is a hot button topic for the title alone. So it's yes, just, uh, yeah, that's yeah. with an asterisk for all the professionals who are saying no, no. Anyway, um, having said that, um, he uh, had created quite an impossible situation or seemingly impossible situation to extricate her from. And um, uh, he, we were able to do so. He sued me in federal court. Um, so, I mean, just again, to give you the myriad of how these things go, the myriad of range of emotion and things you do. And again, usually for little or no money, but the beautiful end to the story is um, she um, no longer goes by that name. Um, she is a very accomplished musician. I'm very proud of her for all that she is. She finished college and I'm able to stay in touch with her and hear um, of her ginormous success. Um, I give myself a little bit of credit. I give mom a ginormous amount of credit and a myriad of therapists who help her, her unwind her truth and keep her safe. Um, the things and the links that dad went to in order to have his story be the truth um, are mind numbing. <laughs> And I could go into detail, but for purposes of today, I just want the listeners to know that what can often feel like an impossible mountain to climb can be. And um, with the right team in place, things can get done. That is, you know, one, I'm so glad you you told that story because so much, I know you, for, for those who are listening, I know Bath, we're friends. She is Truly, she may be the billion-dollar divorce attorney, but her real talent and and what makes her shine in our field is her true belief that and and caring for her clients. Like Beth is the only attorney that I've ever met who I think could fill a room with her clients just by picking up a phone and people would just come running. Most divorce clients are like, thanks a lot. You've been awesome. I hope I never see you again. Not Beth's clients. Beth is becomes their friend. But in this particular case, I think, you know, everyone thinks that we'll, we'll call it an alienation case, like you said, because it's, it's the term most people know. We have other terms for it. But in the end, you were able to unravel it. And I can only imagine this that that had to be years. It, those cases don't unravel and don't get fixed and don't get, you know, even just plumbed to you know to to the depths of of what can happen in those without it taking years. And you stuck with it, and to know that that girl, you know, really escaped is from an abuse situation, and and you helped her. So bravo to you. Yes, those are those are by far and away the most memorable and. Um refreshing um, parts of our job. Um, the only thing better is um, similar kind of rescue missions. Again, I tend to get appointed on the really tough ones. I have three former GAL clients who are now attorneys and they say it's because Gee, of the- I wonder. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that to me is a ginormous compliment. And I have a young woman who 
I'm, I've worked with for a little over a year now and she texts me on the regular and asks me to go to coffee. And the most recent coffee included her asking if she could work in my office because she thinks she wants to do it. She's 16. So anyway, those are the most memorable and, and the things that make me want to do this work. Well, and I think the fact that you value those is why you do the work that you do and do it so well and why you're Beth McCormick and why I love you so much. So thank you for sharing that. And I'm so happy for all of the kids and for the judges. I know how hard it is. You know, I've talked to judges over the years about how hard it is for them when they're on these cases and they need to find a GAL or an attorney for those children uh, that they know who is going to be able to really get into this case and and do the work, as you said, it, it's a special few in most jurisdictions, and uh, that they have you willing to do this work and to dive in. How, you know, you must be a blessing to your bench as well. So, and to the children and the families that you help. So, thank you so much. Thank you, Susan. All right, listeners. So next up, we have Kate Anthony. Of course, we could not do a special compilation episode without our favorite Kate Anthony. And for those of you out there who are listening, who have not yet met Kate, she is my go-to divorce coach. She is the uh, podcast, uh, the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, number one podcast, divorce podcast in the world. And I've I've designated that it that. So <laughs> you told me that, and I was like, is that true? Oh, yeah, okay. as far yeah, as I'm cool. concerned, it's the number one divorce podcast <laughs> in the world. And uh, my good friend and has been on gosh, divorce and beyond. I think Kate now like five, six times, this will be seven. Um, but I know you, and I, we talk all the time about cases and all that. So I know you have a ton of memorable cases, but you've, you've narrowed it down and are going to share, um, actually two favorite or memorable cases. And I'll have one in each of the episodes. So let's dive in to number one. All right. Susan, thank you so much for having me on. I just, you know, any chance I get to like hang out with you makes me, makes me happy. So, um, so this was a client, this was a a few years ago and I was working with her on how to tell her husband that she wanted a divorce and they had a teenager and he had been divorced before and he had literally packed his bags in the middle of the night and left his first wife. They did not have kids, right? So like, all right, not the best way to do it, but like, all right, <laughs> right? Got the point across, I guess. I got the point across, but like that's that was his frame of reference for how to tell someone that you're getting divorced and how to the do talk. divorce. Then yes. how to have quote the talk, right? Um and so when she told him, she we crafted the conversation within an inch of its life, as I do with all of my clients. And it was pretty like foolproof, right? We basically say like, okay, what do you think he's going to say when you say this? And then it's like, you know, it's a choose your own adventure. If he says this, you're going to say this. If he says this, you're going to say that, right? And he, he just was hell bent on making this uh, litigious or not amicable, right? He was just hell bent on it. And I coached her and she was like, she did such a stellar job. She just kept saying to him, yeah, no, honey, that's just not how we're going to do this. 
<laughs> and he'd be like, rah, 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 you this, and we're going to do this. And we're going to da, 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 and you. And she was like, I understand that you're, that you're really upset, but like, this is just not how we're going to do this. We, we have a daughter and you know, this is, and she held that line. She just kept repeating it over and over and over again. Yeah. But that's just not how we're going to do it this time. We're just not until finally the man just surrendered. And he was like, all right, fine. How are we going to do this? <laughs> what do you have in mind? Okay, fine. Wait, what? Okay. What are you saying? And it was so beautiful because like, she just didn't, she was so loving and kind and she just held her line so clear. She never veered off. She never took his bait. She never went like down the rabbit hole of like, of, of getting sort of atta- hooked in by his narrative. She just held her line. I know you're upset. I know this is not what you want, but we are going to do this collaboratively and in the best interest of our daughter. And that's all there is to it. And <laughs> I'm just know, curious, like how long did this go on for? I think it was like a good two months, maybe. Oh God. Like, I mean, not consistent, right. But it was like, it took definitely a few weeks of like constant, like, no, 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 I'm not doing that with you. No, I'm not doing that. Not dancing that dance, (laughs) you know? And I mean, really as our, as our friend, Christina always says, right. That like, when you're playing a tug of a game of tug of war, if one person drops the rope, there is no game of tug of war. And she just dropped the rope and just kind of stood there looking at him and was like, I mean, you can keep pulling that rope, but it's, it's you're, you're going to get to the end of the rope soon. Yeah, Where are you going to exactly. go from there? And then what? Right. And it was, God, it was so great. It was just so great. And it was just such a shining example of what's possible if one person just one person drops that rope and holds a really, really, really steady boundary and line in Buddhism. We'll call it, you know, making a cause for something, right? Right. Really just standing your ground in, mm -mm, we're going to do this really well for our children. Now it's not possible for everybody because some people really will once they reach the end of that rope, they'll find another one. They'll, they'll start at the end again and work they their will way back. Start, right. Exactly. But, um, but you know, it is, it is more possible if you hold that line than it would be if you didn't, you know, I think it's great. And if you think about it, it kind of goes back to what you and I talk about a lot is that the initial emotional moment is not the time to be making decisions. Um, It's the time to have a conversation, but know that it's not the end of the conversation. That's why I was so interested to know how long this went on because I'm always talking to people about giving if, whether it's for you or it's your partner, giving them that grace of space because her husband, I think also probably needed to just work through That's right. how this was all going to go. The ino- initial emotional content does hopefully come down over a period of time. And so he basically got a couple of months too to calm down. <laughs> That's right. To go through his stages of grief. Right. Yes. And this is what happens. And you're right. We talk about this all the time. Like don't make major decisions in that really, really heightened state. You've got to let the, the, and you know, listen, 
you know, even if you have been betrayed and you are rage filled and you want to take him to the cleaners and like all the things, right? Yeah. You got to let the, you got to let the air out of it for a, for a minute. You've got to give the space and allow the other person that time. Um, and that's what she did, right? She was yeah. like, we're not making any decisions yet. We're not making any decisions until we can think clearly until, you know, we can have a sort of calm and reasoned conversation about this. And it took a while, but eventually he got there. Yeah. Well, which is, and I love that she said, until we, we're not going to make decisions. We aren't going to do this. We aren't going to do that. Cause so often right. people in those conversations are like, you need to calm down. You need to do this. And that's, that's right. never the way to get your point across. Right. Nope. Nope. That's right. Cause this is a, we, right. Like it yeah. may not be it different. You know, we it's a different, we, but it's still a, we, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. well, this is perfect because for those who are listening, one of Kate's most, actually, I think it's your most popular episode on the show is how to ha- tell your spouse that it's, this is it. We're, you know, I, we're getting a divorce, not, I want a divorce. There's a little tip from that episode, but go listen to it. It's we're getting a divorce. I've decided we are going to be getting a divorce. So Perfect tip for episode one of the compilation. And Kate's going to be coming back. She's going to be my only double guest between both episodes. So be sure to tune in for the second compilation episode of What's My Most Memorable Case. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Thank you so much, Susan. So listeners, now we've got Tracy Malone with us. I know you remember Tracy. I got to tell you, I can't wait to hear her most memorable case. Tracy joined me just a couple of months ago to talk about her brand new book, Divorcing Your Narcissist. You can't make this shit up and you can't. Um, But this has been super popular episode, obviously, on Divorce and Beyond. It is the number two episode of all time and climbing quickly. You're gaining on Bill Eddy. Um, who also was talking about how to protect yourself when divorcing a, nar- a borderline and nar- or narcissist. Uh, but Tracy, I, you know, I have to tell you, there's, you know, we've talked several times. That for those who've listened to the episode, you know that Tracy and I've known each other for a very long time. But when I read through your book and read through some of the examples of cases and things, I have no idea how you can narrow what you have heard in your career down to one memorable case. So I'm excited to hear this. You know, as, as you asked me to pick a memorable case, I was like, there's so many, I mean, it could go this direction. It can go that direction. And and I thought I would go with this one because a, it's more, more current, but it really involves other, other players in the divorce game. And um, the shocking part to me was, was it was about forensic accountants. And, you know, it's common for a victim of narcissistic abuse to walk into the lawyer and be like, I think they're stealing, they're hiding, they're this, they're that. And then the normal thing is the lawyer goes, forensic accountant. Okay, let's get them on our team. We're going to do that, right? I mean, she was sold the forensic accountants as the, the financial like detective. They're going to find the fraud. They're going to like investigate. They're going to, they know what to do. Don't worry. And so as she went through and and the forensics basically took the paperwork, put it in the spreadsheets, it cost her at least $25,000. They showed up and I know in mediation, they had two of them there and they do like, there's no fraud. 
There's no hidden money. There's no nothing. There's nothing illegal about the business sale. And, you know, all of the things that she had concerns about, the forensic went, it's just a spreadsheet, ma'am. And it was not the smoking gun she was promised. It was not what she expected. And um, her lawyer even went so far as to call her a conspiracy theorist for knowing that her husband not only had like buckets of money and safe deposit boxes in 12 states full of money, which of course you can't even track that with a forensic accountant, but because of that, she knows there's more that's being hidden and they just weren't believing her. Um, And so what we ended up doing was I called in um, the divorce solution people. This is Karen and Catherine. You're going to meet them on one of these episodes with you. Yes. And I happened to be talking to to one of them about an hour after she received the paperwork. And she's like, Tracy, I already found the fraud. It was in like an hour. These people had taken so much of her money and they were like just putting numbers in. Right. And she looked at the paperwork and went, this bill of sale for a business isn't even signed by anyone but him. Like, I mean, all of the things that a, a normal someone would look at them and go, Red flag, not normal, not normal, not normal. The forensics just took the numbers that they were given, regardless of the fact that nothing was legitimate, right? So they ended up going to the um, to the other side and and you know presenting this, and they said, "Hmm, was it real? You know what? We'll just unsell it. It's been a year and a half, but we'll just unsell this multi million dollar business." And like, I'm sorry, big flag again. I'm like, who does that? You can't unsell a business. Like that doesn't make any sense at all. So, you know, really learning the importance of a a forensic accountant. If the the paperwork had been looked at and reviewed by someone like like them, um, they would have said, this is the area we want the forensic to explore. Not like, here's how I go to CVS and, and my more, you know, normal monies. Like that was just wasted time. And again, I know until they find it, they don't know. So they're going to do that. But they were able to pinpoint and get exactly what was going on here. And, you know, the lesson is that they can be a very important part of the puzzle. Some people need it. But if you are really expecting and and suspecting um, kind of larger fraud, you need to get someone in there that is going to point the forensic in the right way. They only research that venue that that, you know, part that you go to. And if your lawyer doesn't believe you that what you're saying they're not a good lawyer for you. And she ended up having to change for the third time. But this is, again, a common thing with the forensics that we expect more from them. We expect them to be financial like detectives and it doesn't work out that way. That's such a, I love that you're making this point, Tracy, because I think everybody thinks a forensic accountant comes in and what they really are, are, are number hunters. I'm, and, and no offense to my forensic accountants out there, but what they do are take the numbers. You said it's just a spreadsheet, man. That really is what they do. They, but they're, first of all, their information is only as good as the paperwork that they're given to review. And what you've pointed out, say the bill of sale, that's only so signed by the seller, purported seller of the business, et cetera. 
they're not going to pass judgment on the legality of the documents that are given to them. That's not their role at all. What they look at is what they're given and take the data out of it. So it's important. And if you're an attorney, frankly, most of us don't have, I mean, over 30 plus years now, I've picked up skill in looking at financial information and being able to interpret it. But bringing in someone like Catherine Shanahan of My Divorce Solution, who you mentioned, um, Catherine and Karen uh, did a wonderful two-part episode, and they are coming on to tell us about their memorable case. But absolutely, having somebody who can interpret that. And also, you know, I think for your clients as a coach and as someone who supports people who are dealing with narcissists and who do so much financial abuse. I mean, that's just such a normal part of a narcissist's tool bag um, Mm -hmm. that people understand right off the bat that these extra professionals, these additional professionals should be part of their team and to get the best ones that they can out there. Certainly Catherine, I mean, she's, you know, those ladies, Catherine and, and Karen are fantastic. They, they, they know their stuff. And again, they, they cross the line of financial and legal. And so they're able to see things that aren't normally seen. You know, my advice to her at that point was, all right, good. We have this. Go to the town hall where that business is. Did they file them? Because that's fraud now. Like, like, we're just like, boom, boom, boom. And now we have enough to make him make a different decision because we've come up with all of this fake information. Yep. Yeah, caught him. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. But again, had they not gotten involved, it would have been just law of what the numbers they got. And, you know, it didn't affect or move the needle. It didn't show any of the hidden money and assets. In in this regard, we had enough to, to make him scared to, to come up with a better settlement. Yeah. Best case scenario doesn't happen in all cases, but definitely the other thing I want to mention is you mentioned she had to change attorneys and it was her. Now she moved on to her third attorney. You and I had a really great conversation on your um, video series and about that process, about the fact that especially in cases where we're dealing with high conflict people, it can be very normal in an abnormal kind of way to have to go through a number of attorneys. So I encourage people, I'll put a link to that in the show notes for this episode, because I do encourage people to go listen to that because it was a, it was, I, it was a great conversation to have with you. You had some really <laughs> great questions. Yeah, it was a great, you gave us so much information. And again, um, it's, it's knowing your own power. You don't have to stay with them if they're not doing the work and the fear yeah. of, Oh no, I have to start all over again. Well, what do you want the result to be? It's it's different if you aren't in a high, say, monetized kind of situation. If you are talking about large sums of money that are being hidden, it makes sense, right? If you're talking about we're splitting the house and the 401k, it may not be as as you know important to go and get the extra mile on that. But if you are dealing with high conflict and you know just sort of a, a bigger portfolio where more fraud can be done, you need to, you need to get some help and do it right. Yeah, you really do. And I love the last great point that you just made is you really have to do the cost benefit analysis of this because proving that you're right when there's nothing to get for being right. Satisfaction doesn't get you too far, unfortunately, in this legal process, getting free and getting the divorce over with is probably a better goal. If there's 
nothing to to get. So, well, this is, I, as always, it's fascinating to have you back on and I encourage people again, I'll also have a link to the book. Um, it's also in my, um, on the, um, divorce and beyond pod.com webpage. We all have a new page that's broken down by topics for listeners. And we have one whole page on divorcing a narcissist and high conflict personality. And of course it's all dedicated to Tracy and Bill Eddie. So go on over there and you'll find links to everything there. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. It's always a pleasure. Uh, you, you as well. And I'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Tracy. Okay, well, we just heard from Tracy Malone, the author of Divorcing Your Narcissist, You Can't Make This Shit Up. And as you know, she mentioned My Divorce Solution, Catherine Shanahan and Karen Chalou, and now they're joining us, as I mentioned. So ladies, thank you so much for coming back and sharing your most memorable case with us. Oh, so fun. Thank you for having us. And actually, that book is excellent that Tracy wrote. Right. It's like the encyclopedia of oh, narcissism awesome. and ha- and what you can do about it. And it's actually a very easy read. It is. She put so many stories in there, which is, you know, really great. And then she talked about a case that she's done with you recently where financial clarity was not obtained through the forensic accountant and the attorney's work. It was actually gained through your work, um, which I think is is wonderful because so many people um, think that everything's going to be answered through litigation. And as we all know, sometimes litigation um, doesn't give us all the answers that we want to have. So that was that was a really great case with some good takeaways. Um, I do want to remind listeners that you two joined us uh, late last year for a special two-part episode, very popular the top five financial roadblocks in divorce and thankfully what you can do about them. So um, I'm really looking forward because I can only imagine some of the things that you two have heard, but I'm really looking forward to hearing your most memorable case. Oh boy. There's so many of them, right? (laughs) There are so many of them. And most of our memorable cases are a result of information asymmetry plus misaligned incentives. So people will probably wonder what that is. And that's a lot of what Tracy talked about, I'm sure. It's when everyone, clients, attorneys, forensics, all the divorce professionals are not working from the same fund of information. And they're not working towards the same incentive for the client's benefit. That, in a nutshell, becomes memorial, memorable cases for us. That's a kind of a hard word to say, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not behavior-centric as much as it is financial-centric. And those cases are memorable because of the money left on the table or the money not ever brought to the table. No, those, and that's everyone's big fear, right? I know that's something that you guys deal with a lot. Huge pain point for a lot of my listeners is that fear that they aren't going to get their fair, equitable um, portion of the marital estate. They aren't going to have enough money or that there's going to be hiding of, of money or failure to disclose. Oh my gosh, that's so many podcasts that we could talk about. Yeah. You just mentioned about four of them. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> but you know what both you and Karen are saying? It, you know, you would think if you're going through the divorce process, that would not occur. Like, how could we not all have the same information? It's the same household. 
how could we not get all this information assessed for us so that we know what to do with it? It's typically now just tons of paperwork and emails. And if you have any kind of complex case, or if you even mention the word that you don't trust your spouse to an attorney or a mediator, their response is, you need a forensic accountant. You know, we don't know what the scope of it is or anything like that, but the mistrust leads you to that. And I kind of chuckle with Karen all the time. I'm like, of course they mistrust them. It doesn't mean that that spouse is doing something bad all the time. It's just that there's a break in their marriage. So we see forensics come in and we God love them when we need them. But there's a lot of cases that they're not needed or they don't even know what their scope is. This person just came to him saying, you know, my spouse took money here, there and everywhere. So this one case of ours um, she kind of came in, I think, Karen, in the middle of the process, right? So we did a little bit of damage control there. She spent a lot of money with her attorney. She uh, spent a lot of money on a forensic, but somehow she heard our podcast, I think, and said, oh my God, I don't have, I'm not clear what's going on here. So she didn't want to pay our fee, I remember, right? And Karen got on the call with her quite a few times explaining the differences and she did hire us. And thank God she did because- I don't know if she spent ten thousand, but I think she ended up walking away with two hundred fifty thousand oh, dollars. Nice return on investment. With. Yeah, <laughs> very good return, right? Yeah. And yeah. this was just a misalignment. You know, a lot of times people want to get through and get finished. So we get on with the forensic accountant. They give us a great report. There's a lot of restricted stock units involved. Um, so I'm asking for the documentation to support the exhibit that was made. The forensic, in turn, says, "I didn't do that exhibit." The attorney did that exhibit. Well, that's interesting. Karen and I, I think we both got on the attorney call. The attorney was very arrogant to me. Did not like the fact that I was coming in on this call so late in the game. Why would she spend money on us? Blah, blah, blah. I asked him about this exhibit. And he said, what's the big deal? I said, where's the ledgers? Where's the invoices? Where's the employee benefits package? I need to see the vesting schedule. I see this doesn't make sense. I'm asking him all these questions. He's getting agitated. So he said, it doesn't really matter because all of it will be considered marital. And I said, oh, okay. Are you going to, can you put that in writing? All of this will be marital because if it is all marital, I'm totally good with it. Right. Sure enough, they move, he, we get off the phone. He's agitated to the client. I think she called us because he was upset. We're like, well, you upset my lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine that. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Karen. So um, I think they're going to get fired then if they upset. Except lawyer. <laughs> lawyer. Yeah. 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 By the yeah, way, think- we don't fire clients, clients fire us. So oh, yeah. thank you for saying that. My gosh, I think we have to repeat that so many times, right? Yeah. <laughs> so here her agreement comes and she asks us to look at it. It wasn't all marital. Uh-huh. We're like, hold on, stop. This is exactly the opposite of what was told. Now we do need, we do need ledgers. We do need not just a tax return because you're not going to find your RSUs um, on your tax on return. Tax return. We need, you know, one, two, three, four, and five now. So she did push back and uh, get the information. And that's where additional monies were discovered that went to her side. To the tune of $250,000. $250,000. Right. Well, and for everyone out there listening, I hope you all get a windfall of (laughs) $250,000 knowing that you can push back. But that's such a great story because it is so indicative of the problem with making assumptions and being rather cursory in that financial overview. I mean, I, and and let me just, you know, I am a family law attorney. 
I've been doing this for years, but we don't have special training in financial backgrounds. Most of us, I mean, some, some of us do, there's a couple of unicorns out there who are CDFAs or CPAs and lawyers. Um, but the idea that we know everything about the finances is even when we're working with financial professionals who do know everything or want to know more is where, you know, I think it really stands out for people that, you know, we have to make sure that all of the information is there, or we understand that we don't have all of it. And that's a risk we're willing to take. And when I say we, I mean the client, really, it's up to the client to make those decisions. And, you know, I'm glad that you're saying that because clients don't understand, like you both said earlier, that they can fire their attorney and that they do have the right. This is their divorce. Everybody else goes home. We all go home after these cases. They're living with those results. So if you're hesitating because you don't feel right about it, listen to yourself. There's a reason for that. And don't worry about getting your professionals mad because they should not be getting mad because you want more information. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Don't worry about annoying your divorce attorney. That's like, (laughs) so many clients do. Yeah. So many clients do. And I think what they don't understand is accountants and forensics and other divorce professionals presume that the information they're getting from the counsel or the attorney is, is accurate and true. And, but however, what people don't realize is to your point, not all the attorneys have the financial awareness or the expertise to document the information in the first place. They're just doing the best they can. Right. And so there is the information asymmetry that I was talking about. Um, you know, so it's important that you, in these types of cases and really in, in more basic cases, the same thing happens that it all needs to be supported and you are entitled to to documentation to support the financial data. Yeah. So you th- I know that we're only supposed to talk about our one case, but if you can indulge me in a minute, there's there's a case that Karen, you just brought to light in my head. And that is, you know, a couple came, they wanted to go to mediation and the husband was giving all the information, actually gave her um, passwords to get into his account. She got in, she printed it out. It was very nice. A, a few weeks goes by and I think he started dating someone and now everybody got pissed off. Right. Right. <laughs> so now it just exploded. Uh, so hint, if you want to date, just wait yeah. till your negotiations are over. But so what happened was we had all this information because we did their portrait. Now they each go to attorneys and she had the smart to say something's missing on here. Right. So she comes back to us and asks us to review her agreement. And I, I said, well, wait a minute, where is this one account? I knew there was another account. And she went back to the attorney. The attorney says that we don't have that information. We get on with the attorney. We didn't we get it. From, I said, you got to ask from the other side. We don't have it here. Because his attorney didn't really ask about this, he was assuming it was non-marital money and didn't include it. But because we had the information, because they came to us in their honeymoon period yeah. where they were willing to work together, we had that data and she was smart enough to recall it. And again, Karen, that, that was a few hundred thousand dollars as well, right? Yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and important point there is people do that. They make assumptions about the characterization of assets and think that, well, if that's separate property in my mind, then I don't even have to put it on here. And that is something that, frankly, the attorneys should be, you know, explaining to their clients um, that everything is disclosed. 
And then if it's characterized as separate, it just isn't put in the marital pie to be split up. But everything is disclosed. You, the client, don't make decisions about what you're going to put on that piece of paper or give the information about, um, whether it's separate or community or marital or whatever your state is. So I think that that's significant. And the other thing, just on your first story, and really this one as well, if a fine, you know, to my colleagues out there and to clients, to, to people going through divorce, if a financial professional says we need this information and it's missing, that should be a huge red flag, huge, huge, huge red flag. Somebody is waving it and blowing a trumpet that you need to get that information because if you choose not to get it, then you are choosing to let whatever that potential asset or potential debt or potential, whatever it might be, go. You've mm-hmm. been warned, you know, it's out there and it's the financial professionals like you two who should be telling people and they should be listening if something is missing. Something missing to me is a major red flag. Absolutely. So the takeaway here is you may be in a space where you're afraid. You don't have this information and you're afraid. You can ask for it. You may be in a space where your spouse is saying, I'm going to take care of you. You're going to be fine, but you still don't have the knowledge or the financial clarity that for yourself, like you don't need someone to tell you that you're going to be okay. You can make that decision for yourself because you're going to have to moving forward. If you find yourself in these spaces, find the financial clarity. It's yours to own. You're a more engaged client at the table and you're a more independent client or person moving forward. So to do more exploration on this topic, we invite you to our website at mydivorcesolution.com. Look around, take the assessment, look at our resources, and we're always here to answer any questions you have. That's so important. And actually, Catherine, we were talking before we started taping. You mentioned there's that assessment on the website. If you can't answer the questions on the assessment, that is a red flag for you folks that you need some additional help. So uh, go to the website, mydivorcesolution.com, take that assessment, and it's going to give you the place to start. But thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for joining us again. And we're going to have some more, um, more information from Catherine and Karen in the future, as well as on my other podcast, Learn to Mediate Online. So I'll be seeing you both very soon. Yeah, we love thank it. You. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, listeners, we're going to pause there and we'll be returning on Thursday with more of your favorite experts and guests and their most memorable cases, including my own. So we'll see you on Thursday. Thank you for joining me today on the Divorce and Beyond podcast. I hope you found some information and inspiration to help you on this journey. Please join me every Monday at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for a new episode. And if you like the show, please take the time to subscribe and leave me a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find more information on the website at divorceandbeyondpod.com where you'll find links to the YouTube channel, transcripts of the episodes, and other bonus content. So I'll see you next week to help you move through your divorce and beyond. Thank you.